Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, we are in the book of 1 Samuel tonight. So if you've been with us on our Wednesday nights, we've been going through the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, we've done Judges. We've Everyone enjoyed Judges, right? <laughs> and then we did Ruth. Everyone did enjoy Ruth from what, from what I hear about that. Ruth's a lovely book. And now we're moving into 1 Samuel. It's always a, a pleasure to start a new book of the Bible. Um, if anyone's got 1 Samuel open... If you could just flip back to the book of Ruth and tell me what the last word is in the book of Ruth. David. So as we move into the book of 1 Samuel, it is really the story and the narrative of Scripture that is bringing us up to this monumental period in Israel's history where the king, King David, ends up on the throne. And obviously we know King David points towards Jesus Christ. Let me just open with prayer. And then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I pray now that you would just uh, bless me, Lord, as use the words of my mouth, Father, as we teach. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. So the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, originally they were obviously one book in the Hebrew Bible, same with 1 and 2 Kings. That's why we count our books differently. They have a different number of books. It wasn't until the, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, that they were split into separate books. But it doesn't really matter. You know, they're all, they're all, all, all the narrative continues throughout all of them. They provide us with a history of Israel. And the way it does it is it frames it around, really, they're really biographies, three historical biographies of Samuel, of Saul, and of David. That's what 1 and 2 Samuel are really looking towards. It's the transition period in Israel's history. We've been in the period of the judges. You remember this cycle? That was a judge was always raised up to judge Israel and bring Israel back to repentance and we had the cycle of the judges as Israel listen and then they rebel again and they go back and it goes round and round. We're moving now into the period of the monarchy. So the, the period of Israel, they are going to get a king. Samuel has the privilege of being the last judge but he also is the first prophet of Israel. There were previous prophet, prophets obviously in the Bible but of the specific office of prophet starts with Samuel. Now, it's amazing how much we get in the pages of Scripture in the Bible. It's always been one of my greatest joys ever since I became a Christian years ago is studying the Word of God. I never cease to be amazed by what is in its pages. And I always think it should be like that. You know, if, if we actually think this is what it is, the literally God-breathed message from the creator of the universe we should expect it to have a lot of amazing stuff in it and it does but if we're all honest with ourselves there are portions of it that we find quite difficult don't we and these if you are if you look through most people's bibles you you know where they write their notes or they do their drawings whatever you you know not judging do what you want but um, my wife does drawings, it's fine, don't worry. Um, the part where you might not find many notes are generally the historical books of the Old Testament. These are the ones that people are usually the least familiar with in Scripture. Yes, we know the big stories, we know David and Goliath, and we know all the famous stories that we have, but the actual narratives we're quite unfamiliar with. And now I just want to say, that, I mean, this is great that we, we're just going to go, we're going through all of these historical books verse by verse. And I really just urge you to, to study them here, but obviously read them in your own time so that when we come to study them, you have them in your mind and in your heart. Because 
you will, particularly with 1 and 2 Samuel, because so many themes that we're going to see start in this book will open up in the New Testament, you will not understand the New Testament in all its fullness if you don't understand the themes in this book. I'm not saying you won't understand the New Testament. What I'm saying is that you maybe will be looking at it in black and white when you should be watching it in colour, if you see what I mean. It's standard definition, not 4K, because you're missing the depth. That is, if I can use that term. Um, You're missing the depth that is laid out for us throughout the whole of Scripture. And this is what I want us to look at tonight. So we're looking at the history of Israel. Now, Israel itself is an interesting entity. It's an interesting entity today, It still is. You see all the trouble in Israel. There are reasons for that. But it was just as interesting back in the day, uh, the days of its kind of glory era, or or shameful era, whatever you want to call it in this period of history. Um, It points us towards Jesus. You may notice that one of the phrases for Israel, they are referred to collectively as God's son. Okay, you'll find that in many places throughout the Bible. And in many ways, Israel typifies what Jesus will do. Whereas they fail, he does not fail. They were to be a light to the nations, he is the light to the world. These sorts of things you find running through scripture. We see this now in the offices that the Lord gave to Israel. What have we seen so far? We've seen a judge, haven't we? And we've seen priests in Israel. We're about to get into the book of Samuel, that means we're going to see prophets in Israel. Then we're going to move into the story of David and Saul, we're going to see kings in Israel. Judges, priests, prophets and kings. Now, what offices did Jesus hold? Jesus came as a judge, and he will judge one day. He is a priest, he came to give that sacrifice. He is a prophet, he foretold the future of what will happen, much of it still to happen. And he was and is a king, and one day he will reign. So even in these offices, that, that even though they weren't being fulfilled properly in many ways, they still point us towards Jesus Christ. Now, you see, before we explore some of these great characters, Samuel and David... We're going to do 1 Samuel chapter 1 tonight. And as we learn, as in many of the biblical stories and in many highlights from church history, at the beginning of many of these great episodes, there is a faithful woman. And tonight we're going to meet one of these women in scripture. Her name is Hannah. It always reminds me, I think I told the story, it must have been seven, Jake's dedication seven years ago, but it's a story that I heard earlier listening to one of the old Calvary teachers years ago. It was a story that Chuck Smith used to tell. Chuck Smith was the founder of Calvary Chapel Movements. And he told a story that he always used to say whenever he was growing up, his mother would always, always sing to them the song, Jesus Never Fails. It's, just, it's, a, it's a famous hymn if you know it. Whenever they were sick or they would hurt themselves, or I'd imagine, as probably a lot of the, the mums do, when you're trying to get the kids to go to sleep, you're rubbing the back and you're singing one of your favourite songs, Jesus Never Fails, was, was the one in the Smith household. It was the outworking of her faith. And she was so known for it that when she died, that's what they put on her tombstone, Jesus Never Fails. And then Chuck tells the story that years later, when they were visiting their, his mum's grandmother's, his grandmother's gravestone, to their amazement, they found that on her gravestone were the words, Jesus Never Fails, too. I'm guessing that she learnt that from her mum. That was what happened in her households. One generation, two generation, down to Chuck Smith, down to hundreds of thousands of churches all around the world. That's the legacy of faith. And we're going to see that sort of thing with this woman, Hannah, now in the story. Let me give you one more parallel before we look at the text. This is really just to kind of build, build the suspense for the importance of the history that we're looking at here. You see, you notice in the Gospels, 
The Gospels tell us the story of King Jesus. And is that the, the forerunner? Who was the forerunner of Jesus? The one who prepared the way? John the Baptist. Yeah, John the Baptist. So just as the Gospels present us with the forerunner of King Jesus in John the Baptist, 1 to Samuel begin the story of King David by introducing us to Samuel, who in many ways is the forerunner of King David. And the parallels here are amazing. Just like Jesus' frontrunner or forerunner, David's forerunner, they were both born to previously barren, faithful women of God. Elizabeth and Hannah. They these faithful women who received God's mercy at this point in their life. They were both miraculous births, and both of these children were instrumental in ushering in game-changing kingdoms, the kingdom of the monarchy in Israel and the kingdom of God from the greater king. Now in chapter 1 we're going to see a number of characters. We're going to see two prominent males, and I'm going to, going to level with you fellas. We don't do great in this chapter, Okay. We do not do particularly well. Ladies, you do pretty good in this chapter. But the men we meet are not particularly great. That will become obvious as we go through. Now, if you just remember, this story overlaps with the time of the judges. So you remember all that we learnt about judges. You know, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You remember that? It was just hard, you know, those events that are just hard to read in the book of Judges, and you know the ones I'm talking about. Terrible, terrible events. That was Israel at this time. It's a dark, dark time in Israel, and it's here that we see the beginning of this prophet. So let's get into chapter 1. First two verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramayath Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So here we're introduced to our first man. His name is Elkanah, and he is Samuel's father. And he said to live in the short name Ramah of where he is. It's the hill country of Ephraim's territory. If you remember, when Joshua came into the land, obviously they were all allocated tribal designations for where they would live. It was, this was the territory of Ephraim. It's, it's a southern area, it's kind of nearer the Dead Sea, down the bottom of Israel. And the text says that he was an Ephraimite. But he was only an Ephraimite by residence, if you see what I mean. That's just where he lived. We learn from the book of 1 Chronicles that, that Elkanah was actually a Levite. That means he was a priest. Okay, that's what we need to understand for this story. He was a priest. Now, we get a few insights into this priest here. You see, Ramah, where he was living, was not one of the Levitical cities allocated for priests to live in. If you remember in the book of Joshua, there were certain cities designated that were called cities of refuge, and there were certain cities designated that were for priests to live, because the priests did not, Levites did not get any land inheritance because the Lord was their inheritance. But they were designated certain cities within all of the different uh, tribal allotments where they could live. And the idea would be that you'd have priests in amongst all of the nation of Israel. It's a very good model of what the church's kind of mission is, to, to be ministering to all the people. But this guy, Elkanah, he's not living in the Levitical city. And that, I think that is a hint that raises some initial questions about his commitment to the Mosaic law. Was he where he should have been? You see, was there something holding him back, maybe, from entering into full obedience of service? Maybe there was some sin in his life? Or maybe, maybe he was just very comfortable being near the action, 
but never actually having to commit in any serious way. I think this is a good lesson for us today. You see, we mustn't be one of those Christians who are merely just church-goers, okay, content with a Sunday faith. And I'm not talking about your, necessarily your strict attendance, I'm talking about the, your life that lives out of faith from one Sunday to Sunday, basically. We don't want to be one of those ones who stays on the edge but never enters into the deep fellowship that you get from the body of Christ. Okay, this, this is a, it's a very real danger. And what happens if you are on the edge, you're out of the reach maybe of accountability, of responsibility, of demand from the Lord. It's just easier in many people's minds to stay around the edge. But unfortunately, I've seen it many times. Generally, almost always, these are the people who become lukewarm because Christians were not made to function like that. They will become lukewarm. What does Jesus say, Revelation 3.15? I know your deeds, they are neither hot, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The strong words from Jesus there, saying that there's really no such thing as a lukewarm Christian, or there should be no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not a, isn't it, Is it not a sad thing that after all Christ's love to us, we should repay it? with lukewarm love to him. And I'm not coming down hard, we've all probably fallen into this, this area in our Christian walks at some point or another. But I've seen it many times, Christians who are, we call it backsliding, don't we? Those who were once filled with the faith have pulled back, sometimes there are valid reasons, well never valid reasons, but there are justifications for it. But after a while you notice that the joyful Christian life is not something that they are displayed in their life. They're not properly engaging with Christianity as it should be because that comes from the body of Christ. And this is the same. We see this pictured in the God of Israel. All these elaborate details that we find throughout the Old Testament, all these Levitical laws, these ceremonies, these, the things that the priest had to do, these are all pointing this, in the house of God. These are all modelling for us what the church is because of what Jesus Christ fulfilled in all of them. Okay, so the, all of these things have a role and have an importance, and we should be learning, learning from them. Now, it's very easy to be on the edge. We can blame circumstances, we can blame churches, we can blame people in the church. But the reality is, true Christianity is only fully experienced when we are living fully submitted to the Lord. It is our heart that determines how close we are to God and how far we are from God. No one else. We can blame other people. People do. But when you really get down to it, it comes back to your heart. What do you want to do? Elkanah was almost living as a priest, but not totally living as a priest. Greg Laurie said, What a heartbreak it would be to live as an almost to live an almost Christian life and then almost get into heaven. Obviously he's making a point with that, obviously, but you understand I hope you understand that point. Elkanah. It says he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penaniah. And Penaniah had no children. Had children, sorry, but Hannah had no children. Two wives. Now, I'll be honest with you, you read a lot of these sort of verses in the Bible, and they always bother me. They bother me hugely, because you, you see them in the context when you're talking about many, what we would consider great heroes of the faith, these sorts of things. Now, it bothers me because in many ways I would like a stronger condemnation of these activities. They almost seem to be just sort of brushed over. Maybe this is the reason why he was living outside of the Levitical city there not quite able to be fully 
um, incorporated into the priesthood in that way. On the other hand, we also need to be very careful that we don't read a text in our own cultural setting and put our, um, we don't read back part of exegesis, hermeneutics. This, what we do is we, we have to take the grammar and context and culture and we read out. That's, that's basically what we do in that sense. Now, we don't understand a lot, you know, even today, the concept of arranged marriages seems just absolutely cruel and foreign to us. You go back two generations, three generations, four generations, and it was the norm in many, many parts of the world, still is in lots of parts of the world, and these weren't all forced and horrible marriages like we, we see in a sort of looking maybe through the lens of an Islamic context today. Um, you, know, you go back two or three generations in the, Jewish, in the history of the Jewish nation, they were all arranged marriages. They were family events and they were arranged. You trusted your parents that they would make a good choice to you and it brought families together. And there were, It was just a different concept. It's hard for us to wrap our, wrap our minds around. It's just an example. Now remember the book of 1 Samuel, you're talking 900 BC. Okay, that sort, that sort of era here. The issue to them, when I read that, that little bit, there was two wives, it's jarring to us. It stands out mainly because we've had kind of 2,000 years of Christian influence, I would say. But 900 BC, that little fact was so mundane, it was not even really noteworthy. Um, that it was just, it's barely worth, barely worth mentioning, really, at that point. Now, I believe we have it mentioned in the Bible to highlight the fact that it's clearly against God's stated purpose for marriage. Right back from the book of Genesis, that's one of the first things he instituted in the Bible, so that we do see that whenever we find these sorts of things in the Bible, we get to see the consequences of them. Now, because I, I see you don't get the strong condemnation in a very definite sense, because usually they take place in a narrative. And a narrative is just a t telling of the history at that time, and it's not always the place to have the strong condemnations. If you're reading an epistle, like in the New Testament, you do get much more direct and strong condemnations of these things. But narrative is not always like that. It's just a re you know, sometimes it's just literally telling the, telling the history. But what it does let us see is the consequences that flow from this that cl clearly prove that it was outside of God's will. However, in, this, in the ancient Near East, there were some things that were very important that we don't even think about today. One of them was the continuation of the family line. And how you look after people. You, you had to have your, you know, if you don't have children, your name disappears. That means your family line disappears, your inheritance disappears, anything that's associated with that. And that was a big, that was a, hu a huge issue. If you were barren, that was considered really to be a curse from God because it would mean just the stopping of your family line. It would also mean that one day, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to have a marriage with your children and get a dowry that would be your kind of a pension, there was no welfare state and all, the, all these sorts of things that we, you know, we don't really think about when we're looking at these sorts of texts, they all play into us. So one of the main reasons that, that these sorts of things would happen in the ancient Near East was when they were unable to have a child and then they would take another wife in order to have a child. It's not actually ancient Near East, we see this in English history with the, you know, just a few hundred years back with the kings and queens of England, same sorts of thing happened. It's it's just what was going on in the world at that time. Now, yes, we'd like to see it kind of more condemned, but I believe when you take the whole revelation of Scripture, it's very clearly condemned. And we're going to see as we move through this chapter what this causes in uh, the life of Elkanah, Elkanah. Now, one of these women was called Hannah, and she was the one who was barren. It says in verse 3, Now this man would go up from, the, from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phinehas were a priest to the Lord there. You see, Elkanah was not completely unfaithful. He was still making one of the annual pilgrimages. Remember, the law commanded that all Jewish men had to go up to the tabernacle three times a year, unleavened bread, Pentecost and the Feast of Booths, to worship the Lord. He was obviously still doing that at this point. I'm guessing that it was maybe Hannah who was the driving force behind this because we kind of learned that she used to accompany him, whereas the females were not actually required to make that journey three times a year. So my suspicion is that she maybe had something to do with this. There's another point that really thinks about this. He did what was required, okay? Adherence to the law, we could say. He did the minimum of what was absolutely necessary and what was required at this point. He made this pilgrimage. But is this just adherence to the law? Is it really a devotion to the teaching of the Lord? And I see here a lesson for us again. It's very easy to treat our relationship with God like that, to to treat Christianity like that. We're doing just enough to get by. We're making sure we do all the big ones. We're going to church, we say grace before meal, we do prayers at bedtime, we attend some other meetings, we don't swear, we don't drink excessively. In many ways, these are just the things that Elkanah was doing. The main ones that people obviously would see. But the question has to go deeper. Was he doing it because the law said he could do it? Was he doing it because he wanted to go up and worship God? That's the issue that we need to understand in our own lives. Do we really seek after God in deep and meaningful ways? Remember in Luke chapter 18, actually you can turn there with me briefly. Luke chapter 18, we have this episode of this man, the rich young ruler. He comes and asks Jesus a question. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. It says, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You can see the mindset there. What do I need to do? What's the minimum I need to do to get eternal life? Tell me. And Jesus answers him, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's obviously clever argumentation, he's making a point there. Do you know the commandments? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. The big ones. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now if we read this just simplistically, it might appear like he's actually saying, this is a work that could get him into heaven. You have to understand, this is a very Jewish little, we're given a glimpse into a very Jewish piece of teaching here. How did Jesus distill the law? Do you remember that? What were he, when he distilled all of the Old Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. That was his summation of the law. And in that word there, from, the, from Deuteronomy 6.5, with all your heart, soul, strength. The word there in Hebrew, the way, the way the Jewish people interpreted this, it wasn't really just talking about physical strength, obviously. It was talking about, it was, it was expanded to include everything, right down to your possessions. So the point he's making here is, he's he's making in a dramatic way, he knew this man was rich, he had many possessions, and they were not being, he was not submitted to the Lord. He wasn't fulfilling the summation of the law, because he wasn't committed to the Lord with all of his heart, his soul, and his strength. So when he's asking him to go and sell these things, he's not just saying sell them and then give them a poor and you'll get into heaven. He's challenging the heart attitude that has not even obeyed the Shema, the the most important text in Israel's history, Deuteronomy 6.5. 
he hasn't understood the spirit behind the letter there, if we could say that, okay, of Deuteronomy 6.5. And then he goes on, the man, obviously, you know the story, it's hard, you know, he's had a lot of stuff, this was too hard for him, and Jesus goes on to explain the story there. But what he hasn't got is a full devotion to the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 20, My soul is crushed with longing after your word at all times. Do we really know that sort of feeling? I mean, that is, I mean, you see this all through the Psalms, Psalm, verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation, I wait for your word. Isaiah 26. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently, seeking the Lord. This should have been the attitude when Elkanah was heading up. This should be the attitude of anyone when we come to church, when we are going to the house of God, when we're going out into the world. We're seeking the Lord Diligently, Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I can tell you, it feels sometimes it feels like this place is pretty dry and weary, doesn't it? Life can be very difficult and very hard. This is one of the things you'll notice throughout the Psalms, particularly the Old Testament, periods where the land is described as dry and weary. There's desert, there's, there's all these sorts of things, there's a hot desert. Why do we have that? Obviously that's what the geography was like, but what's the, the counter to that? How is the Holy Spirit in Jesus always described? As water. And you notice there's a huge contrast there, and we kind of miss that, but this is, this is the contrast that's being built in these sorts of texts. You see, the problem is, if we try to live the Christian life thinking maybe that we, we're doing okay, we're doing the best we can, we're doing the big ones, that sort of attitude. You see, we don't do, if we're just doing what is required, we end up, those things that are supposed to be joyful for us, end up becoming burdens to us, because we're doing them with the wrong, with the wrong heart. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. And I'm saying, we've probably all been in and out of that trap at various points in our Christian lives. But the things that people keep telling us, people who are sitting up here preaching, keep telling us, are supposed to be good for us, we find them hard. And they can be a struggle. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no shame in admitting these sorts of things. What we, want, what we want to understand is the root issues behind this. And it comes back to what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. Well, your heart... In Hebrew, heart was talking about intellect and mind more than it was emotions. Soul was more for emotions and these sorts of things. And your strength, everything you have, right down to your last possession. Think of the widow's might. She gives out of her poverty more than they give. It's not about the amount, it was about the heart. The Lord sees the heart. These are the sorts of things. <clears throat> Do we have a heart that really longs for God? Many of you have probably heard of the great church father, Augustine. He wrote many, many books. There's one he wrote called Confessions, which is basically just a long list of his life. It's very interesting, his life before he was a Christian. And interwoven with these confessions to the Lord is his sort of deep desire for his longing with God in his new life. I'm just going to read to you a small portion of it. He says, You called and cried out loud, and you shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent, 
and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant, and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touch me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. I do not hide my wounds. You are the physician. I am the patient. And my entire hope is exclusively in your very great mercy. My God, give me yourself. Restore yourself to me. See, I love you. And if it is too little, let me love you more strongly. Make my life run to your embraces and not turn away until it lies hidden in the secret place of your presence. Let me climb the ascent of our heart and sing the song of your steps. For I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We want nothing but to stay there forever. You see, that was a man who had experienced the grace of God. And he'd come away from a life and he was searching and longing after God. You see, living a sort of Christian life is really a waste. And you, and you, you never really see someone more miserable than a Christian who's trying to live a sort of Christian life. You see, let's be sure we long for God. We long for God in all our pains and the hurts and the joys that we get in this life. That is what God's for. As we go up, I think someone quoted, it's better to say a thousand, you know, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And it says they go up, it's back to the text, we go up, Elkanah, they were going up to worship the Lord of hosts. Now you'll, you'll see that name a lot in the Bible, Lord of hosts. This is the first time it's ever used in the Old Testament, Lord of hosts. It's first used here. It's a very common name from here on out. It's emphasising power, rule, sovereignty. The hosts is talking about the hosts of heaven, the angels, the humans, even the stars are are categorised under this. It's speaking of one who is so sovereign, he has the right to rule over everything. He does rule over everything. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the one they were coming to worship. And then it says, (laughs) Eli, or Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli was the high priest at this time. Hophni and Phinehas were his two sons. These were very wicked people. You'll learn more about it next week in chapter 2. Basically, they were thugs. They had a racket going in the temple. These two sons, they would steal people's offerings. They would threaten their worshippers with physical violence if they didn't hand over the best food. They'd use the courts of the Lord, the house of God, to invite local women and do their thing in, in the temple of the courtyard. They were thugs, basically. And Eli, who was the high priest, he knew about it. He was aware of it. But he was powerless to stop it, really, at this point. Because they're grown men now. It should have been something that was dealt with a long time ago. But it also says that they don't know the Lord. They were thugs. And they were using... You know, I say thugs because it says that they're threatening people who come to worship physically. That's what it's referring to. You see, it's a good lesson to remember. Don't let... But, you know, these are thugs. Everyone knew they were thugs. The whole of Israel knew this was a sort of priesthood that was in the tabernacle at this time. But yet still, Hannah and Elkanah understood that their obligation was to serve the Lord, and that meant going up in obedience to him at these required festivals to offer sacrifice and worship the Lord. You see, even though the priest's conduct was terrible, She was not going to let that be a reason for stopping her faith, or his faith at this point, both of them probably. And this is a good lesson to remember. Don't let the failure of others knock you off your Christian walk. Okay, I've seen this so many times, particularly with young people. 
because you, you look up to people, you find someone and you think, you know, these guys are never going to fall. This is what the problem when we put too much faith and too much responsibility on singular leaders. This is why in Israel you had a whole priesthood, these sorts of things. You had whole tribes and whole priesthoods. When or if they fail, I've seen it many times, people go into a complete tailspin. They don't just doubt that this person did something wrong, they doubt the entire veracity of the Christian faith because in their mind, how could someone who seems so strong do something so bad? Okay, that's a misunderstanding. Okay, it's tragic and, it, and it's, it's a shame that it happens. But all these people are sinners saved by grace. Now, obviously I'm going a little bit out of what the text here because these people were not in fact saved by grace that we learn in the story right now. But in a broader Christian context, you know, leaders do fall. Leaders are there to be a great example, to shepherd people in the flock. Paul says, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay. But if, if someone does something that you think is not right or is clearly not right, then that is no representation that the truth of the word of God is not true. That's just saying that that man's a sinner and he's, and, he's, and he's straight at that point. That is why the constant refrain in the scriptures is to fix your eyes on Jesus. You look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The supreme example of our faith. The great shepherd, he's called Everyone else is just an under-shepherd under him. He is the great shepherd. And we encourage one another in these walks. This is why when you, when you notice, if you learn Jewish history, going up to the house of the Lord was not a singular event. It was a, you know, you would, you would travel with all your extended family. It was a huge event. You would go up together to worship in the house of the Lord. We're, so, we're very individual in the West. We even read the scriptures in an individual way. When we read the epistles... We read, that per- we read it all personally, you know, it's just something we do. We personalise everything. And sometimes we individualise things that are actually supposed to be talking about us collectively. And the more we do that, you can, you know, quite often it doesn't make any difference. But a lot of the time, we miss certain things. Right, let's read verses 4 to 8. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am not I better to you than ten sons? You see here we get a glimpse into the internal family strife that was happening in, the, in this section, Jew to having two wives. If you can imagine this, the scene here, he gave everyone their portion. But we learn from the text that Penaniah had sons, plural, and daughters, plural. So that's at least two, probably more. So you could have up to six, seven, eight people on that side of the family. You know, I don't know how much food you have, but the vast majority of it is going to be going to that family. Okay, now yes, Hannah got a double portion, but that was only a single double portion, if you see what I mean. So she would have still had to sit there every night and watch the majority of everything they had go to the other side of the family. But yet on the other side, you see this other wife who she probably knows that she was originally, she was originally the reason, you know, she was never loved in the, sa- in the same way. She was there to try and ra- provide an heir and children, these sorts of things. And it probably annoyed her more than anything that, that Elkanah still seemed to favour Hannah, even though she was barren, which in, those, in the culture was supposed to be a curse. It's a mess. And because of that, they're described, it says, her rival. Hannah and Penaniah, they were rivals. And every year as they would travel up to the Lord, Penaniah would 
basically bully <laughs> Hannah. And you can imagine how those sorts of things would go because the Lord had closed her womb and that was considered hugely shameful in that culture. And uh, on and on that would go. I think you can imagine why that happened. But note it was the Lord that closed her womb. It was nothing to do with being cursed by God in that sense. The only reason they thought cursed by God is because uh, in the Jewish culture, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you're obedient, you'll be blessed and one of the blessings is children. It doesn't say one of the curses is not children. They just kind of extrapolate from that and it kind of got caught in, into the tradition there. But this, with Hannah here, it says that the, the Lord had closed her womb. Remember in John 9, the man born blind, and the disciples say, who sinned, him or his fathers, that this man is born blind? That's how they thought. And Jesus says, no one sinned. And then he says, he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. That's much the same thing that's happening with Hannah now. Because we're, you know, she's about to have, give birth to Samuel, sooner or later, who would become the kingmaker of Israel. Very, very important person in God's timing. But her rival provoked her bitterly. And I, I imagine Elkanah was kind of helpless in this situation. You know, his, it, it is what it is at this stage in their life. Uh, I'd, I, I'd imagine he was pretty much in the situation where he could do no right in any situation because everything was kind of wrong already. And it, it was just... Um, I'd imagine he was trying to placate, placate both sides, these two rival factions within his own household, just trying to keep them happy all the time. And he obviously failed because, you, you know, you could just imagine how, how that's just not going to work. But you also see... <laughs> But he comes to her and he says, yeah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Because one of the commands, obviously, of coming up to the house of the Lord is it was supposed to be a joyous festival. You're not supposed to have a sad face at these times. And he's basically saying, you know, why are you not engaging in the festivities with everyone else? And then he says, am I not better you than ten? Surely I am enough, is basically what he's saying. Um, now I think, and we laugh, I laugh slightly at that statement, because I find it kind of, Again, I don't think the guy's come off particularly well here. I think he's willfully ignoring the situation in his family because it's easier for him to do that because he doesn't really know what to do about it. I also think this is an insensitive question. It shows that he has no understanding of the depth of her suffering and he's just saying stupid stuff, basically. He's saying the wrong thing. I also think it's a slight thing that he just seems to be that he can't understand that she might have needs that he can't meet. Obviously, in the patriarchal culture at that time, this was, how it, this was how it was. But there were things that he couldn't meet, especially when you add in this whole rival family that was attached to them forever, in that sense. It was a messy, messy situation. And this is Hannah. But yet we see her faith shining strong throughout all of this so many times. Let's read on. Uh, verse 9 and 10. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, and now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she greatly, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Uh, let's just keep reading. As she Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord, but Eli was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, and only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. And then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, 
but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favour in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It says she was greatly distressed, so she prayed to the Lord. And this is a great example for us today. Many of us will be greatly distressed, probably at many points in our lives. And where do we go when we're greatly distressed? There can be an instinct in us that wants to pull back from God in times like this. Again, I've seen this many times. Bad things happen, you're having a tough week. Last thing you want to do is is kind of make the effort and, and do these sorts of things. It's easier just to pull back. Quite often we'll go to friends, we'll go to family. Some people go to social media to, uh, to vent. You know? You, you know, you can't get a word out of them when you're with them, but on social media, it's all, you know, they're, they're open, they're all over there. But where should we go? The first place we should go is to the Lord in prayer. And like Hannah here, we don't need to go to the Lord in prayer and sit there trying to sound holier than now to the Lord. You know, oh Lord, you are so holy, oh I'm such a wretched singer. I don't believe they are the sort of prayers that they're doing here. See, this was a woman who was greatly distressed, oppressed in spirit, crying out to the Lord. I doubt really she had much uh, thought about the language that was happening at this time. It was just an outward expression of her grief. And you see this many times in the Bible. It's okay to go to the Lord in that sort of a state. In fact, he, he wants you to come to him like that. He wants to be the first person you come to when you're feeling like that in life. We go straight to the Lord. And her prayer really shows her dedication here. And she makes this vow. Now again, we don't really understand the concept of a vow, but there were laws in the Old Testament to do with vows. And one of them was you do not make a vow lightly. These are very serious things. If you break a vow to the Lord, that had very serious consequences. They understood the value of speech. You know, speech, I think, we would probably agree here, speech is probably one of the most damaging things that we experience in our lives. You know, many of us on a day-to-day basis, we're not actively sort of, getting in fights and having huge amounts of physical violence or in a war zone, talking about our context here necessarily. But most of us will understand how damaging words can be. Uh, false promises, words said, you know, the Jewish people understood this. I've told you this before. They had huge teachings about what they called evil speech, being a talebearer, being all these sorts of things. These were hugely important things in the Jewish culture. And one of these things about speech was you don't make vows, you don't make promises that you can't keep to the Lord. That was a serious thing. So Hannah, and Hannah, I think she's a faithful woman. She knows this, but yet she's making this vow here um, to the Lord. She's making this vow and she, you know, she's understanding. It's, it's an active expression of her faith. She wants to dedicate a child that the Lord gives her back to God. And she says no razor will come on his hair. That means he'll be a Nazarite. That means he'll be a specific, specifically dedicated in his life to serving the Lord in that very deep way. And we see her faith in this. You see, it shows that she didn't just want a child to silence Penaniah. She didn't just want a child to be able to be like, ah, you know, I'm the original one, now I have got a child, you can shut up. Which, you know, I'm sure sometimes in her flesh she probably felt like that would be a good thing. She didn't want to have a child just to have a family, either. Sometimes we, you know, we can put all hopes on those sorts of things. Because in that culture, that would have meant that she was accepted as a normal woman. Being barren, she was accepted. She was not accepted as a normal woman. She was a cursed woman in the eyes of the culture. You could see why any woman would want that to be rectified 
having known that she hasn't actually done anything wrong. However, we see here, she wanted to make a positive contribution to God's kingdom program. She wanted to have a son who would be a leader in Israel. Probably sickened by the leadership that she'd seen at this time. You see, this is the vow that Hannah makes. And it reminds us, why do we ask for things we do? I'm always amazed sometimes when I sit there and I go through my prayer diary. You kind of cringe at it yourself. There's various things that you've written down at some points in your life. And you scribble them out so if anyone ever finds it, then... And you replace it with something way more holy. But then you leave it open near your wife just to see. But you know what I'm saying? We often ask things with selfish motives. Not trying to be really selfish, but again, it's because we're in our immediate context. It's, we've got things going on in life and we think about that. But Hannah is an example here. She had a lot of stuff going on in her life. Very, very difficult. But yet she was thinking about God's purposes for Israel at that time. Because she knew that God is not doing something that's not so significant. And she knew the promises of the Old Testament. And I think she knew something of the future of Israel in this sense here too. Hannah, she's a great woman of faith. Now we see Eli, Eli rather. I say Ellie because when I was in Israel, we had, we had someone on our tour who everyone, whose name was Eli, everyone called him Eli, and he, he was just like, no, no, you pronounce it Ellie. And ever since then, I've always kind of gone back and forth, but it just sounds wrong in our culture to say Ellie, so I'm going to stick with Eli, but that's why I keep making that slip. Um, I think here we see another blunder from a man here, I'm afraid. He comes to her and he thinks she's drunk because she's praying in the temple in the way that she is. Now, I think also this shows that maybe this... Uh, he doesn't seem... You know, he's... Uh, another, another woman, she's drunk in the temple. This was probably, this, was this a common occurrence in the temple at that time? Remember, this is the period of the judges. I'd say it probably was, actually. Um, I'd imagine... That I, I, don't, I read this text. I don't have huge amounts of respect for Ellie. You'll learn, when you do chapter 2 next week, you'll see why. Um, I imagine that he saw this woman and he probably thought it's another one of his son's messes that he's going to have to get out of the temple because we learn that his sons were bringing prostitutes in, into the, well, it's the tabernacle at this point, sorry, into the tabernacle at this point. But, so he goes up to her and he's, you know, he says, you know, stop drinking. And she replies, no, my Lord. Okay, she replies, and this shows her great faith again. So even when she had been accused of being drunk, when there was no such thing going on, she, this was a woman praying in the house of God. Uh, she'd been misunderstood and she'd been accused she doesn't get angry at that. She just responds in a very godly way and she says, Lord. Now, Eli was the high priest. That was an office that God instituted. And she was, you know, she's showing respect to that office because it's an appointed office. She shows respect to the honour, even though the person holding that office at that time is really doing no such thing to that office. But again, it's that principle. She's not going to allow someone else's failings to affect her walk with the Lord. She is responsible for her walk with the Lord, not someone else. And that's the point there. It's not, she's not rolling over, she's not, being, she's not laying down. She's being faithful to the Lord. Eli will answer to the Lord, and we'll see what happens to him as we get into this book. He's judged severely. 19 and 20, let's read them. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. So it's obviously Eli 
says to her, you know, obviously, you know, I'm mistaken. Uh, may the Lord grant your petition. And she goes off and, and she has relations with her husband and she gets pregnant. And then in due time, she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel. The, world, the word, the name Samuel means asked of the Lord, as you get in the text there, because I've asked him of the Lord. Okay, and then it says she arose, obviously not after she had the child, she arose after Ellie had told her she had blessed her like that in the temple, and she worshipped. She arose and worshipped. And I think this is another very good principle for us today. When we hear the word of God, through his word today, what should our response be? The word of God at that point was coming through the high priest. Yes, he was a man that we wouldn't necessarily respect, but God had chosen the high priest to be the office that he would often speak through at that time. It's the office that I'm referring to here. But now, we hear from God in very different ways, don't we? We have the word incarnate, as that primary revelation, but we have the word incarnate revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the written word of God. And when we hear the word of God, we should worship. That is the response that it should have. I don't know if any of you saw the video that circulated. China have just started a new crackdown on churches in China, destroying hundreds of them, burning hundreds of Bibles now, and arresting a lot of people. The reason why, they, they, they recently raided and shut down one of the largest house churches in China because they did not want security cameras. They were saying, you have to have security cameras in your sanctuary that we will monitor. And they refused to allow that. And they're gone now. Or, you know, the church is gone, and all the Christians, I'm sure, are, are elsewhere. But this is the sort of thing. But if you've ever seen Chinese Christians, you've ever seen some of these videos that are smuggled out of these places, of them receiving illegal Bibles, of them worshipping with no music... The passion that you see from these people is kind of foreign to I mean it's far it's you know obviously there's a whole cultural difference to us, but it's something that is so amazing to watch that you know what these people the, these people are passionate and longing for that experience with the Lord. Their whole life is dependent on the Lord, they have nothing else. And in some ways I see that and I'm, I'm jealous of it, if you understand what I mean. Other ways, obviously, I, I'm not. <laughs> um, but if you, for that aspect of it, um, you know, we should all be praying for that sort of devotion to our lives in the Lord. And she worshipped. Now let's finish. We've just got eight more. Let's read to the end of the chapter and then we'll say a few final thoughts. 21 to 28. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. And then they slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. This is the final story that we see of, Samuel's, of Samuel in this chapter 1. And we see that they're going up again the next year now, obviously, 
um, to, to celebrate one of these feasts. This time, Hannah says, I'm not going to go with you because basically I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm weaning a child right now. It's a very long and difficult journey um, to do at that time. But I think there's probably more to it. She knows that when she does finally make that journey again, it's not going to be a two-way trip with the child. So she probably doesn't want to get into the habit of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with the child, then one time to suddenly not go back with him. So there's probably some wisdom in what, she, what she's thinking there and that sort of a thing. Weaning, when you finish weaning uh, in the Hebrew culture, this could be anything from two to four, really, in between those sorts of A's. Now we may kind of think, well, this is, is this really the smart thing to do, to, to leave your child um, when you're four? Um, we can argue about that, but I think we'll, we'll see she knows what the Lord is doing at this point. Now, she goes up to the house of the Lord when he's old enough, and she brought with her things for an offering. Um, this was required by the law because this was a vow. Um, one of the Leviticus 27, when a vow was asked of the Lord and it was answered by the Lord, you had to come to the temple and you'd give an offering. And this is what she does here. But if you read all the regulations, I won't go into them now, she gives way more in her offering than was required. Okay. This is, again, an expression of her heart. She's overflowing with gratitude and faith in the Lord. She doesn't just give back the minimum requirement. She goes over and above what she's required to do at that point. She finds Ellie, Eli, and identifies herself as the woman who prayed. And I, have, I reckon that he remembers her um, from that event. I just, see, I just have this idea that he probably remembers that night. Um, and now he's got this child being handed to him. It's a, a very sort of unusual event. Um, I believe this shows great faith of Hannah because knowing the state of Eli, Eli's, Eli's household, he had these two thugs of a sons who was a corrupt priesthood who he was ruling over, but yet she has this sense and she knows that she is giving this to the Lord and the Lord's going to take care of Samuel at this point. Um, Whereas if we go through the story, we'll, be, we'll all be very glad that she did that. She trusted him. Now think on this. There's a, there's a type that's being kind of given to us here. The name Hannah literally means grace in Hebrew. The root word Hannah comes from the word for grace in Hebrew. Now what do you think about this? Grace is giving her only son to the service of the Lord. And he would be the one who would make a king in Israel that day. There's another woman in the scripture who is said to be graced by God and her name is Mary. Luke chapter 1 verse 3 to 33 the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favour with God. The word there for favour in many Bibles it will read grace. It's the same word if you were doing it in Hebrew you could almost say you have found Hannah with God. The parallels between Mary and Jesus come out again like they did at the beginning as between Hannah and Samuel. And we see the same. Yeah, and I believe Mary knows that. Mary, this young you know, Jewish woman at the time who gave birth, obviously, to the Lord. If you study, well, we, we have studied it, but when we see in chapter 2, Hannah's song, we're going to see her burst out into praise in chapter 2. If you read Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke... It's almost word for word Hannah's song. 
So I reckon that this was one of her heroes of the Old Testament faith. And she knows, and she can see the parallel of what's going on here. Because it goes on in, chapter, in, in Luke chapter 1. It says, He will be great, this child, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. It's Davidic language. And what we're talking about in 1 Samuel is the beginning of the Davidic throne. Samuel is going to be the one who is in charge with making these kings. He starts off the Davidic throne. And it's the same parallel that we get going back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament, between the, you know, the Christ child and Samuel at this time. Uh, there's much more to it than that, but that's just to kind of whet your appetite so you can search these things out on your own. And finally, let's just look at the last verse. This is a kind of confusing verse. A, in, in back in Samuel now. It says, And he worshipped the Lord there. Now who's the he? Elkanah? Eli? Now, commentators are not agreed on, on who it is, but most of them seem to agree that, that the grammar is that the he must refer to the nearest antecedent he. And the nearest antecedent he is the boy Samuel, this three-year-old boy. So it seems to be implying that he started worshipping the Lord right there in the house of God from that young age. And I, you know, that's hard to kind of understand if any of you have got three-year-olds. <laughs> but there's something special about Samuel's life here. And he is really, this is the first act of worship that we see from a life that would change Israel forever. You see, Hannah's obedience resulted in great blessing. It blessed, God blessed her with fertility. He blessed her and her husband with Samuel and also with other children we learn later after that. And he blessed Israel with a spiritual leader. The beautiful story of a faithful mother in Israel whom God honoured by giving her a son is the crown jewel in the beginning of this book. The Lord God looks for faithful, godly men and women who he can set over his people as long as their hearts are seeking him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word of God. We thank you for the great examples that we have in Scripture. Lord, we're ever so aware of our own failings, but we know, Lord, that You've covered all our sins. We thank you for your mercy, for your forgiveness. And we pray now that you would just uh, ignite in us, Lord, that passion. For those those of us who have maybe drifted from you, Lord, that you would re-stir that fire, Lord, that you would bring us back into fellowship with God, and that you would just give us a vision of yourself, Lord, that is all-consuming, that you would be our ultimate passion in life, Lord God. We thank you, Father. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.